Welcome back to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast. My name is Henry Rivera, and I will be the host for the show. Today, I am joined by another boss lady by the name of Melissa Mendoza. Ms. Mendoza is the principal of the Sandra Cisneros Learning Academy and has been serving the Echo Park and MacArthur Park community for over 15 years. Throughout our conversation, Melissa and I discuss her journey into the world of education, the importance of bilingual education, and what teachers and parents can do to maximize student efficiency during the pandemic. I hope you enjoyed this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it. See you on the other side. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Today, I am joined by one of my former colleagues who is now the principal of the Sandra Cisneros Learning Academy, Miss Melissa Mendoza. Melissa has been in the field of education for 15 years, serving the Echo MacArthur Park community. She holds a master's degree in education from UCLA and holds her admin's credential from Dominguez Hills. She has a passion for bilingual education, serving underrepresented communities and creating educational equity for students. Miss Melissa Mendoza, I am happy that you are joining me today. How are you? I'm good. I'm so honored to be here. I'm excited to, to reconnect with you, honey. Yes, no, me too. It's, it's been a while since we talked, so it was very tempting for, for me to not start recording and just be like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> and just talk for a <laughs> while. But um, so before we get started today, I'd like for the audience or for our listeners to, little, to know a little more about yourself. So can you tell us more about who you are? Yeah, um, well, I, I live in Los Angeles, born and raised, um, Dodger fan. <laughs> and coincidentally, my school is just down the street from Dodger Stadium. I have been doing this, I was telling it's my quinceanera, I've been doing this for 15 years in the field of education, um, both as a bilingual teacher, as an administrator. Most recently, I'm, like you said, I'm the, the principal um, of the school that I helped open um, about 10 years ago. So next year will be our 10th year in operation. Um, and I'm very, very grateful for, for the community that it's allowed me to serve them for, for this last decade. Um, and, you know, on a personal note, um, I'm a mom of a three-year-old, um, so I'm, I'm really feeling it with the parents who, who've got to work from home and parent all at the same time, feeling like an octopus with, like, hands everywhere, trying to, you know, do the family thing and do the work thing and do the teacher thing all at the same time. Yeah, and I feel like that must be particularly difficult when, I don't know, when you're also in charge of an entire school, right? I think for us teachers, and not to undermine the work that we are doing, but I think when you're in charge of teachers and students and everyone else that's working in your school, it must be particularly difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think I was a little bit more self-conscious at the beginning, always apologizing, like, sorry for my three-year-old in the background, but now, um, you know, almost six weeks into, into the work. Um, it's just kind of the new norm of like, we're having a serious conversation about your instruction. And I'm also like opening an applesauce pouch on the side. And we don't like, people don't seem to bat an eye to that anymore. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it's definitely becoming the, the new norm to just do both at the same time. Um, and I also just have to feel thankful that I'm getting so much time with my son. It's usually that doesn't happen. Yeah. And you know, I was just thinking this too. It, what, what a feeling it must be to be the founding member of the school that you are now the principal for, right? Yeah, that, that's when I, mean, I always say that's my first baby. Like I have a three-year-old, but my, my, my first baby was uh, the Cisnero site. Just, you know, 10 years ago, coming in with, with another group of, of teachers who's several of them still there um, and thinking like, what will this look like in 10 years? Like, what will we be doing? And, and some of the goals we've met and some of the goals, um, you know, we're, we're still working towards, but it's, it's definitely um, something I'm really proud of and 
you know, I definitely miss the school and the building with this distance learning. Um, I drive by sometimes just to get it. <laughs> just to be like, you're still there, you're still standing, you're still in one piece. Yeah, very nice. Okay, so one thing I want to, I always like to ask everyone who comes on this podcast is to ask them what got them into education. So no exception for you, Melissa. What got you into education? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, my mom was a teacher, so it's always been, you know, it's kind of in the blood. Um, my aunt was a teacher. My mom was a teacher. Um, you know, I, I always, before I was in the classroom, I was in their classrooms, putting up posters, you know, cutting things, laminating stuff, all of that. Um, and when I was finishing up my bachelor's at UCLA, um, I was trying to figure out like what route do I want to take? And um, I had taught swimming lessons from like high school through uh, college. So that was like my first experience in teaching, you know, just like being in a space with, with a child and, and trying to teach them something new. So that really called to me. Um, I don't know if I've ever called it a calling, but it definitely um, it felt like the right fit for me. Um, and particularly for working in a bilingual space, I felt really fortunate that in the state of California, we still have bilingual biliteracy education and, and ethnic studies, and we, and we support that. Um, in many spaces. So yeah, I applied for, for UCLA and I also applied for the Peace Corps and was like, whoever takes me, that's the route that I'm going. <laughs> um, so UCLA, you know, obviously took me and, and that started me on my, my journey. Um, and particularly UCLA because they place all of their candidates in LAUSD sites mostly, but in uh, low income and, and areas where they, they're really in need of, of good teachers. Yeah, and speaking of LAUSD, I mean, it's the second biggest school district in the country. You got to work for LAUSD, right? I mean, I know now you're working for a charter network, and, and you, but you got to work with LAUSD first, right? Right, right. Um, and, and I'll say, um, you know, there's always kind of people who are like, you know, charter versus LAUSD, but we're, we're all public schools. We're all public schools. We're doing the same work. We're serving the same kids. You know, the, the biggest difference is that my local district has like 30 people working there and I know them all by name. And when I worked at LAUSD, like it's just such a bigger production, um, so many more schools, but essentially the, the goals are the same. And I am in a building that is overseen by LAUSD. So they visit us once a year. Um, they make sure that what we're doing is aligned to what they're also doing for students in, in the LA area. I loved the school that I worked at uh, when I worked for LAUSD. I taught kindergarten and first grade bilingual in the MacArthur Park area. Uh, and I learned a lot. I was a coordinator for them and out of the classroom administrator for the last two years that I was there. And I learned a lot with LAUSD. But when Cisneros was being built up the street from the school where I worked, I had a, uh, a couple of colleagues who had been working for Camino Novo and were sharing the passion that uh, Camino Novo is a, a charter organization that I work for. And we have seven schools. So I'm one of seven schools within that charter network. And my school site is um, the Cisneros site, but Camino Novo has a passion for, for bilingual education um, and biliteracy and not just to transition kids, to teach them English if they're coming in um, with another language, but to really make them biliterate. Um, so that that really um, piqued my interest and I, I thought I'd look into it and then ended up landing a, a job and, and here I am. Speaking of bilingual education, I, that's something I, I wanted to talk to you about anyway. So where does that passion for you, where does that come from to, or, or why do you feel like it's so important for students to be exposed to bilingual education? Yeah, um, I think for me, it's really, really personal. Um, it's, it's, it's about a sense of identity, both for myself and for our bilingual students. Um, it's not just about 
you know, making sure that we're at some academic level of language in, in English or Spanish or whatever other language, but there, there's a hard tie between how we see ourselves and the languages that we use, right? And then um, the doors that open for us. So just knowing that like you can navigate, you know, other spaces in your world, connect with other people, travel, um, you know, apply for different jobs, all of these things that open up when you know more than one language. Um, but then it just kind of comes back to self. I actually um, started my, my personal education in Mexico City. My dad had um, an opportunity to move to Mexico City and work for an architecture firm there. So I did preschool, kindergarten, first grade. I was about second grade when we moved the United States. And when we moved here, automatically they put you in like those ESL classes and the goal was teach this child English, but nobody protected or respected my Spanish um, language or my Spanish identity. That was like kind of quickly washed away. Um, so for about the age of like second, third grade until um, high school, I really stopped speaking Spanish unless I was at home. Like it was a almost an area of, of shame for the neighborhood where I had grown up in. So in at home um, with my parents, with my siblings, the, the language was um, Spanish, but outside of the doors of my home, it was English because we really wanted to assimilate. And I think, you know, once I hit high school, I had an amazing Spanish teacher um, who really just pulled out both the language and the identity that comes with that language and being proud of, of some background that I hadn't really been proud of in a few years of really digging deeper and asking my parents questions about their heritage. Um, they're Colombian. I was, I was born here, so I'm a Colombian American. And, you know, really wanting to, to know more about what happened when I lost my language. So when we don't encourage those home languages, we, we really are not just saying like, oh, you know, make sure you speak English so you can take this, you know, state SVAC test or whatnot. But we're, we're getting rid of some pieces of identities that are really important in the lives of our students. So for, for me, that that's what it comes down to. I, I really want to cultivate, bring in what's happening at home, what's happening with the way that parents want to raise their kids, and, and then make sure that the school is supporting that and not creating like boundaries. And, and I'm trying to raise my son bilingual, and it's, it's a challenge because now my dominant language is English. I definitely speak Spanish. Um, you know, I'm, I'm bilingual, but I shifted. In, in my life from being a dominant Spanish speaker. There are so many directions that I want to go in <laughs> so because I can really, I can relate a lot to your story. You know, I, I also, so I came to the U.S. when I was nine years old and I remember going through a very similar process where I was in ESL classes and the goal was like, okay, just make him fluent in English. And I think if it wasn't for just my life at home where my mom refused to answer me in English. She was like, no, 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 no. You don't talk to me in English. You talk to me in Spanish. If it wasn't yeah. for that, I, I too probably would have lost my, you know, my Spanish speaking skills. So, and it wasn't until I think, I don't know, I think until I went to college and you know, started taking courses on Chicano studies, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. I really understand the importance now. And funny enough, then I started working at your school and, <laughs> you know, and, and I saw how, um, you know, how the impact that it had, a very positive impact on a lot of students and families where it was not only um, okay to speak Spanish, but it was highly encouraged, you know, to keep that language and, and keep the importance of it. Now, yeah, and it's not even easy to do it at a school setting, like just because we're a bilingual school, we've had conversations, um, you know, with our teaching staff and with our staff many times of we're kind of recreating these systems. These are these are like structural, you know, systems that have been created. Um, they're, they're systems of oppression, really. And we'll find that our bilingual kids, because we have both programs at, at uh, my school, 
kids can choose to be in the bilingual track or English only, but sometimes their bilingual kids will only speak Spanish in their bilingual classroom. They hit the playground and it's all English all the time on the playground, even though two thirds of the school is learning, reading, writing, math, everything in Spanish. It's this like, you know, underlined kind of habit of you step foot outside your home, you step foot outside your classroom, you step foot outside of the safe zones for language and everybody reverts back to English. Right, so we're like we actually did a, a little observation to sit on the playground and listen for Spanish um, and were shocked by the amount, like the lack of Spanish on the playground, even at, at a bilingual school in a bilingual setting. So we're working really hard to, to push back against that, um, even in our own school. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And I mean, so so what do you make of that? Make of that? What do you think that is or why do you think that is? You know, I had a lot of theories um, prior to becoming a parent, but now um, my, my son is teaching me a lot about bilingual education because education starts first at home, right? It doesn't start in the classroom. It starts the moment that, you know, your parents start teaching you the words and, and how to say things. And it's this overexposure that our kids have to media, to technology. And so like what is coming in, what is streaming in? And it's this constant stream of English. Like I have to really make a conscious effort to, um, set the language on like the movies and the shows that my son watches to try to flood him with, with Spanish. But you know, the rest of the world is flooding us with English and there's some signals in there. It's not just like, do you understand? But um, if you can understand what I'm saying in this commercial and this show, then you can engage, right? Then you know what you want to buy, you know what you want to eat, you know where you want to visit, you know what you want to be. So we're, we're really, I think, pushing against kind of a space where we're not yet in, at least uh, in LA, which is a pretty diverse community. We're not immersing our kids in a variety of languages as much as, as keeping English in, in a dominant space. And what about in terms of academics? Like, do you see a difference in like the performance between your bilingual speakers and your English only speakers? Oh yeah, um, absolutely. That's, that's something else that we've looked into in terms of our data and year after year, the students in the bilingual classroom have outperformed our English speaking kids in English. So both like on, on the SBAC, like on our state scores, on their reading levels, on their writing abilities. Um, because language is language, right? So if you're getting a double dose and then our kids in the bilingual program are working twice as hard to kind of do a you know, translation in their head of like, what does it mean to me uh, in my home language and how can I build off of that? You know, how can I make connections? So you actually um, build a lot of language based out of your, your home language. And there's a lot of studies, you know, to show that uh, bilingual children and bilingual people have, have built up some skill sets that monolingual students haven't. All right, and just to shift gears a little bit, this is something I always wanted to ask you because I met you when you were already an assistant principal. So did you, did you always know that you wanted to be a principal? Uh, no, I didn't. I, uh, I didn't. My, my mom would say, um, yes. She, she tells the story of when I was little, people would be like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I used to always say, like, I'm going to be the president, um, <laughs> like, you know, things like that. And so I'm the oldest of three. I'm a Taurus, and so I'm very stubborn. I think I tend to, to be, um, be in spaces uh, where I, I can see myself, like, pushing the envelope and trying to, like, make, make a difference. So I didn't set out that way, but I had been in the classroom for almost 10 years and I was ready to, to come out and do something else. And that was like the trajectory. And so uh, my mom's like, if there were other trajectories in education, like you just want to 
kind of keep going up. I, I definitely wanted to have more say in what was happening at Cisneros um, because I had been a founding teacher. And so that kind of inspired me to go back to school, get some, some information. Um, when you work in a charter network, you need to really educate yourself on, on ed law and ed code um, and make sure that you're, you're protecting your staff and your students so that your charter can continue to get renewed. So that, that kind of pushed me into that space. And even when I got my admin credential, I wasn't so much thinking I'm going to get it and be a principal. I just wanted to, to grow my professional development. Um, and then I had a really good mentor. So once, um, I don't know if you, you remember Shannon Leonard, our, our previous principal. So um, there's only been two principals at my school. He still continues to be one of, one of my best mentors. And as soon as I got my admin credential, he hired me as an assistant principal and took me under his wing. And he was the one that told, he knew before I knew. So when he decided to move on to a, to a district job, he said, you know, a year from now, I'm going to be leaving this position and you're going to fill it. And I was like, you're crazy. Like one, you're not leaving. And two, I'm not going to fill it. I can't fill those shoes. Like, how do you fill your mentor's shoes? And I, and I don't think I've, I've actually filled them, but I tried to create, you know, um, my own footprint. At, at our school. And I'm still learning, like I'm still in a space where like, am I really doing this every day? <laughs> yeah, which, which I think is even better, right? That's the, that's the thing you should be doing, like trying to be like someone else is really not setting yourself up for success. So, so congratulations to you for, for deciding like, no, yeah, I think I'm gonna make my own foot bath. That's, that's the way to go. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Although if somebody had told me all the things that come with leadership prior to being in this role, I probably would still be in the classroom. <laughs> It crosses my mind sometimes. Like I just want to go back to the classroom. You know what? And speaking of that, so one thing that I know that probably brings you a lot of, you know, a lot of pressure is is dealing with how we're how we're teaching now. During this pandemic, now we've had to all the schools have had to shift gears and figure out how we're going to be teaching students. So, how has your school been impacted by the the shift in how we're teaching? Yeah, um, I mean. First off, it's been a, a complete learning experience for everybody, right? Like absolutely at every level, um, all, all of our staff members have had to just change in the way that we interact with each other and the way that we interact with kids. We really have to be on our game to have clear communication. You know, at the beginning of this, there were a lot of questions and there was, um, you know, a lot of fear of like, are we going to do this, this right? And I feel like education is a space where everyone is always kind of asking themselves, like, did I do enough? Can I do more? How can I improve on this? Even if you've taught, you know, the same grade level year after year, it's never the same. The lesson never comes out exactly the same because we're always building. Um, so it's been a great learning experience. I don't know if everyone would say great. <laughs> um, it's been a challenge. But for all of us, um, even for myself, this morning, I just held an, an I, a virtual IEP, you know, so learning how to navigate our, our educational space without the four walls, you know, of a classroom. On one end, it's it's been learning, like I said, but on the other end, it's kind of been uh, freeing and figuring out like how to really connect. You know, we're, we're pulling back all of the things that sometimes overwhelm us as educators. Like right now, there's no testing. Like there's, if I were to tell a teacher, like imagine a world where you didn't have to think about state testing, where you didn't have to like check off a list of like all these mandates, where you didn't have to do a ton of paperwork, where you didn't have to um, you know, continue quizzes, but you could just like build a lesson, 
talk to a student, teach, like really unpack like what's happening there and then like build the next lesson based on the information that you got from, from the student. I think most teachers would sign on. But then if you say like, okay, and how would you like to do that from home? Like, absolutely. <laughs> and, then, and then you really do it and you're like, oh shoot, you know, I'm careful what you wish for. So I'm really lucky that, that our, our teachers have all really jumped in um, and we, we listen to, um, I've been reading uh, Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead. And, um, and I listened to her podcast and, and I shared it with my staff. She talks about um, FFTs. So the, the first F is effing <laughs> first times. Um, and so, you know, we are all living in kind of this space where everything we do is creating the plane like while, while we're flying it. Um, so it's been a challenge, but we've also had an opportunity to try new things, to make mistakes. Like, you know, we're in a space where it's okay to make lots of mistakes because we don't know better. But we miss the kids for sure. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. The kids miss us. That's a huge challenge is, is getting enough face time with the kids. You know, that's that's the you're like the maybe third, fourth person that has mentioned this Brene Brown individual. So I'm going to have to check her out. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you a podcast. Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, and, and it's all been from like boss ladies, you know, so I'm like, OK, what is <laughs> let's, let's see what's up with Brene Brown. I'm going to have to go check her out. From your perspective, what's something educators and families can do to prepare for next year? Because the truth is, we don't know if next year schools will be open again or not. But say from your perspective, what's something they can do to prepare? Um, this question comes up a lot. Uh, just it's like the everyday question, like, what else should I do? How should I be ready for this from parents, from kids, from teachers, from an, other leaders? Um, I think the first thing I would say to, to parents and teachers listening out there is give yourself some grace. Like before we do anything else, um, work from a space of you are enough. I think it's very common as both parents and teachers that we are constantly asking ourselves, like, did I do enough for this child? You know, pandemic or no pandemic, that's always the question on the table. And this really leads to kind of a space of, of stress. But as I was sharing earlier, like we've, we've kind of done away with some of the hurdles that we have in education by approaching it in this way. And I really want to push teachers and parents to prepare by connecting with each other. We are in this educational system where parents are used to like the handoff, right? I drop off my kid at school, teacher gets my kid and, and the teacher is responsible for my kid for six to nine hours. And then there's a handoff at the end of the day where I pick up my kid from school. And what does every parent ask their kid when they pick them up? Like, what'd you learn in school today? You know, and why are parents asking that? Because we probably don't know. Like, we're not really sure what's happening in that classroom. All I know is that teacher is responsible for that time. So this is a really great opportunity. I think the best thing that teachers and parents can do to prepare is to start to connect with each other. I'm not telling all parents out there that they have to be the new teacher, but to really communicate with their kid's teacher to see like how else can we empower each other to share the tools because teachers are trying to get, you know, more time with, with the kids and, and parents are trying to get more resources. And that I think is the the best way to, to prepare, like talk to your teachers, talk to your parents, figure out the best platform to connect, whether it's going to be a, you know, a schedule, a Zoom meeting, a, a Google Meets, a text message, whatever that might be. We have to work as like one team and as allies. It, we can't do the handoff anymore. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because I, I, I feel like that's exactly what's happening with me um, as I'm working with my students. Like I've, have, I've had to communicate with parents more than I ever have even with students who are doing well, because normally the communication between me and parents are, 
if your student's doing well, we're only going to talk during parent conferences. But now it's just have it has to be more um, a more of a consistent communication, which yeah. which yeah, you're right. I think I think that actually makes a lot of sense. The only contact from parents I ever get is from the parents who, you know, who who are always on top of their kid. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and it's actually the other half of the parents that you really need to be contacting. I think there's like this blind trust in the educational system of like, you know, you you're you're a teacher, I'm a parent, we respect like the the roles that we each play in our kids' lives, um, without even having to have a lot of communication. Like, you know, I must have interviewed like 30 people before we hired our our um, babysitter, like our morning nanny, and asked like a million questions. But you know, parents don't really get that option. You just drop off your kid at school, and it's like I'm trusting you to teach them all the things they need to know in this grade level, and and to to get them successful. And um, so yeah, so I think that, and I'll, I'm gonna throw another like Brene Brown idea at you, but she talks a lot about vulnerability, and so that that also has shifted the game in that we're going from a place of blind trust to spaces of of a lot of vulnerability, right? Like teacher parents are getting to watch teachers teach and there's some critique that can come from that like there's some uncomfortableness of like you know telling us how, how to do our job both as parents and, and as teachers um, so we really have to like push past the, the vulnerability um, and and have you know the, the courage to kind of be on the same on the same space with with our parents and say you are the teacher too and I am also helping and raising your child so, so we got to do that dual work together Okay, Melissa, so next up I have to end the show, we're going to ask you some rapid fire questions. So you're going to hear a question and whatever comes to your mind, the very first thing that comes to your mind, I want you to just say it and let it be. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. What's something people tell you that you're really good at? Organizing. What's something that gets you going in the mornings? Uh, my workout class. Really? What, what, what workout class is it? It's like a, it's like a six, eight. Well, right now during a uh, pandemic, I'm doing them via um, Zoom and whatnot, but um, we have a CrossFit gym that we go to and the first class is at 5.30 in the morning. So we do a 5.30 CrossFit. What a boss. <laughs> who's, someone, who's someone you look up to? Uh, my mom. Are you more of a Facebook or Instagram person? Instagram. If you're, if not for being principal, what other career would you be doing? Um, I want, I really wanted to be, um, a, a reporter and I think now I'd be like, you know, that's a travel reporter, but, <laughs> but I, uh, I had a passion for, for journalism when I, I was younger. I could see that. School. I could see that in you for sure. Um, <laughs> were you in any sororities in college? No, but I went to UCSB. So enough said, you didn't need to be. <laughs> that took <laughs> <Yeah>. care of that. <laughs> for sure. Um, in terms of music, who are you listening to these days? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> It's a lot of uh, children's songs, but um, I have been, uh, this is going to be funny, I've been listening to uh, Justin Timberlake because my son's really obsessed with trolls, so I'm trying to move him off the trolls movie and into all of the old school Justin Timberlake songs. Yeah, fair, fair. That's, yeah. That's, Whatever I hear, he's listening to. That's a good compromise, right? It's like, all right, we mm -hmm. like Justin Timberlake. Uh, are you more of a Spotify or Apple music person? Apple. What's your favorite city that you visited? Uh, Barcelona. Ooh, good one. Okay, and this last one is more of a joke. What do you call a belt with a watch on it? Belt with a watch on it. Belt with a watch on it? I don't know. A belt? A waste uh, of time. Ha! <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, That's Melissa, 
what a delight it was talking to you. I like, I, it's, it's something that, you know, it just reminded me that I think it was the same case every time I talked to you, like back at SELA, I remember like feeling motivated and like feeling like, all right, I want to do this. So I got the same feeling again. It was such, such a good time not talking to you. Oh, that is the highest compliment. Thank you, Henry. I, I thank you for reaching out and, you know, let's, let's stay connected. Um, I really admire all the work that you're doing and teachers are already doing above and beyond. So the fact that you, you go the extra mile and even provide, you know, a podcast that's spreading, you know, social justice out there. Good for you. I'm really proud of you. Yeah. Appreciate it very much. Um, well, I very much agree. I hope you and I do stay connected and not just for podcast interviews, Definitely best of luck raising your three-year-old. I'd love to meet him one day. Maybe one uh, next time I'm in LA, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a call or something. Absolutely. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you too. Talk to you later. so much for listening to this episode with melissa mendoza if you want to get in touch with melissa to find out more about the work that she does you can email her at melissa.mendoza at camino nuevo.edu you can also email me at the education movement 20 at gmail.com or connect with me through facebook twitter and instagram at edu movement 20 any likes and follows are always welcomed and appreciated I'm also happy to hear your suggestions for how to make this show better. Until next time, friends, please remember to stay healthy, stay safe, spread love, and spread hope.